Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. Welcome back to our set of exegetical studies in the prophecy of Malachi. One of the major motifs in Malachi is covenant. Malachi draws our attention to this theme immediately by referencing God's covenant with Jacob over against Esau. And this thread is woven throughout the entire prophecy. And if you've been following along with us, you will also know that in this first major indictment of the people uh, directed towards the priests, Malachi is particularly concerned with worship. Because both of these important themes come together in our verse, which we're going to be talking about Malachi 2.4, we're going to slow down and devote a whole episode to it. In chapter 1, we saw that Malachi calls out the priests for this improper worship, and he does so in two parallel cycles. But at the end of each, after condemning the current practices of the temple and warning that God will not accept this hollow worship, he then concludes with a contrast to show that this is not the whole picture. God will not allow Israel's inadequate worship at the time to be the last word. No, verse 11 states, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be brought to my name, and a pure gift, because my name will be great among the nations, says Yahweh of hosts. And then again in verse 14b, For I am a great king, says Yahweh of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Now, in previous sessions, we saw that it's best to take these as prophecies of the future. Israel's worship was corrupt, but God will one day have the glory. And, gasp, this will be from the Gentiles. But this emphasis on the nations uh, raises interesting questions. It might cause us to wonder about the future of Israel. Does this mean that God won't get the glory from Israel? Their worship of God at that time was corrupt, yes, and God would be worshipped by the Gentiles. Does that mean that God's big plan is to turn from the Jewish people to the Gentiles? Does Malachi anticipate this kind of supersessionist replacement reading? In chapter 2, Malachi again describes the insufficiency of the temple practices uh, during the 5th century BC. And again, he pauses to offer a contrast with what will happen in the future. But notice here that the spotlight is not on what the Gentiles will do but on the restoration of the Levitical priesthood. Malachi has just described in vivid terms what the coming disqualification of the then current priesthood will be like. God will smear the dung of the sacrifices on their faces. Verse 4 then reads, here's our text for our episode, and then, or and so, you will know that I sent this commandment to you in order that my covenant with Levi will continue, says Yahweh of hosts. When this humiliation comes to pass, the people will realize that Malachi truly was God's messenger. But all of this, as severe and as harsh as it sounds, is for a reason. The point is not simply that Malachi will see their demise and then laugh from a distance and say, ha ha, I told you so. No, the discipline, as traumatic as it would be, was intended ultimately to be restorative at least for the priesthood in general. It may not be that the actual priests who get the disgrace of 2-3 are themselves restored. Maybe, maybe not. But the purpose of all of it was that God would continue with the Levitical priesthood. 
this harsh word of rebuke was so that way the Levitical priesthood would endure. Now, this raises two questions. First, what actually is this covenant with Levi? Now, that exact expression does not occur in the Pentateuch. But you know what? That really shouldn't bother us all that much. Uh, the idea of a covenant can be present without the actual usage of the Hebrew word berit or covenant. After all, uh, the word covenant is missing from some famous passages like 2 Samuel 7, which is about the Davidic covenant which later scripture refers to again and again using this language of covenant. The Levites as a tribe came into a special relationship with the Lord at Mount Sinai. In Exodus 32, we read that when Moses came down from the mountain and saw the people running wild, he said, who is on the Lord's side? The tribe of Levi comes and Moses tells them to get out their sword and attack their countrymen. And according to that story, they actually kill around 3,000 people of their own countrymen. And then Moses says in verse 29, today you have been ordained, or literally the Hebrew is, you have filled your hand to the Lord by each man killing his son and his brother so that he might give you a blessing this day. This is likely when the covenant was inaugurated. In any case, Jeremiah confirms that this was seen as a covenant and in some ways an unconditional covenant at that. Notice the strong language in Jeremiah 33, 19 to 22. Quote, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, If any of you could break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night would not come at their appointed time, only then could my covenant with my servant David be broken, so that he would not have a son to reign on his throne. And, catch this here, my covenant with my ministers, the Levites. Just as the hosts of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will increase the offspring of my servant David and the Levites who minister to me." Of the sons of Levi, the descendants of Aaron through Phinehas in particular does get a covenant. Numbers 25, 12 to 13, Read, therefore say, I hereby grant him my covenant of peace. It shall be for him and for his descendants after him a covenant of perpetual priesthood because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the Israelites. The specific mention of Levites is a little problematic, however. Through their unacceptable behavior, Ezekiel 44 talks about them being set aside from offering sacrifices. Instead, that prerogative and privilege goes to the sons of Zadok. Now, some have seen a contradiction between uh, Ezekiel 44 and Malachi, since the former prefers the sons of Zadok over the Levites, and Malachi doesn't make a distinction between them. Uh, The sons of Zadok would be a subset within uh, the Levites. One proposal to explain this, associated with Wellhausen, chops up our text into different traditions, which compete with each other. However, an easier solution is to be preferred, one that doesn't pit one part of the biblical testimony against another. It is entirely possible that Malachi agrees with Ezekiel, but that he's speaking in general terms about the priesthood as a whole. Sometimes the work of sacrifice is in view, but as we'll see in our next episode, sometimes Malachi is interested in the wider role of instruction. Furthermore, Malachi is fond of what we would call archaic terms. We've already seen this in 1.1, where the address of the prophecy is said to be to all Israel, but he's specifically talking to the small community of Yehud. 
So to use the designation Israel in the 5th century BC is anachronistic, since the country had long been split in two, with the northern kingdom being taken captive by Assyria. But Malachi's concern is to tie his audience back to the original plotline of the Bible, to get them to see themselves in continuity with the way that things were initially. And as we'll see next time, he takes the same approach here with Levi by going back to an earlier stage in Israel's history. So he might mean the descendants of Zadok, but call them Levites because he's fond of archaic terminology. Or it might be that he's talking about the Levites because he's not just thinking about offering sacrifices, but has a wider understanding of what the priests were to do. So the covenant with Levi is when God chose this particular tribe to function as priests. They were the ones God chose forever to make sacrifices, think of the sons of Zadok in Ezekiel 44, but also to communicate the instruction of the law to the people. So a second question then arises, what does Malachi mean when he says that the covenant of Levi will endure? Now the Hebrew is actually pretty simple, almost too simple. It just reads, uh, to be my covenant with Levi. But the infinitive to be likely has a durative sense, to continue to be or to endure. This raises the issue of God's faithfulness to his covenant with Levi and their continuing role. Recall again Jeremiah 33, in which the covenant with Levi is supposed to last just as long as the covenant with David. Now, as Christians, we adamantly insist that God's covenant with David goes on forever, forever and ever. It does last as long as the sun and the moon lasts. This is part of the bedrock of our faith. God raises up Jesus, the son of David, who sits on that throne forever and ever. But if the Davidic covenant is eternal, and it is, then this means the Levitical covenant is eternal as well. Malachi 2.4 shows God's commitment to this covenant. He will rebuke when necessary, even cut people off from their responsibilities. But there will always be a remnant, so the flame doesn't go out. Now, how is this fulfilled? A few suggestions have been given. Some say that it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. After all, Hebrews goes to great lengths to show that he is our eternal high priest mediating for us in the true tabernacle. But we got a big problem there. The author of Hebrews recognizes the inherent difficulty. Jesus is of the line of Judah and not of the line of Levi. Now, Hebrews solves this conundrum by pointing out that there's another, a better priesthood, the one according to Melchizedek and that Jesus has this kind of priesthood. But notice the logic. He doesn't just wave his hand over the problem of the tribe of Levi and say, oh, well, Levi, Judah, whatever. It's, you know, priestly work. No, the covenants are made to specific tribes. And his whole line of argumentation presumes that these lines between the tribes cannot be blurred. If anything, the book of Hebrews shows definitively that the covenant of Levi cannot be fulfilled by the Messiah. The same reasoning applies to the suggestion that the Levitical priesthood is fulfilled by the church, who offer up spiritual sacrifices. In fact, there, the problem is even worse, since so many of the church are made up of Gentiles, who are even further from the tribe of Levi than those in the tribe of Judah. Instead, the enduring covenant with Levi is one of the many concepts which demonstrates the premillennialism there within the Old Testament. 
some people have this idea that uh, premillennialism only comes from Revelation 20. Far from it. One of the central ideas in Malachi is that God keeps his covenant and that he will keep his covenant with Levi. Yes, he sifts out those who are unfaithful, but there will always be a remnant. I realize that in the broad spectrum of biblical scholarship, the view that says the Levitical priesthood will continue on is not popular. But one of the attractive aspects of this view is that it allows Malachi to stand on his own two feet. It does justice to the doctrine of the progress of revelation. God's word through Malachi was true with what Malachi meant at that time. The the terms don't need to change over time. According to Malachi, the end is coming, judgment is coming, and though Gentiles will worship God, Israel will be restored. And that's why the messenger is sent, because the covenants God makes cannot be broken. This theme of God's faithful love to his covenant people, combined with his fiery judgment, will only continue as we keep reading Malachi. Recall that all of this discussion of the continuation of the Levitical covenant is a dependent clause, a so that clause. God has a plan. He rebukes the people, and boy, does it sound harsh, the kind of rebuke that he gives. But ultimately, his purpose in doing so is to direct the course of this world that he might achieve his intended goal of keeping his covenant, that all the world, the Levites, the priesthood, Israel, the Gentiles might worship him. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu partner.